Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. You turn to the book of Isaiah as we begin this second week of starting this series. I hope that... Uh, You'll enjoy it and get as much out of it as I have writing it. And I haven't pulled it up yet. All right. So we're in the first chapter of Isaiah. This will take a moment. I want to tell you something that you've heard from me many times before, and and uh, but I want you to understand that I'd say this with the utmost love and compassion for you as as believers. But you're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're born into sin. We are. We sin. We we. You know, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none of us is righteous. I mean, that's a pretty sad commentary. Of the human condition. It's sad to think that, you know, such an amazing creation that God has, has done, that we are actually in reality, that we are sinful. In our humanness, we, we don't seek after God. And were it not for Jesus Christ, we, we would all get what we deserve, and that's death. And we don't like to hear that. I mean, nobody, nobody likes to hear bad things about themselves. We don't like to hear that we're sin. In fact, that's why many churches no longer preach about sin. Well, we don't need to tell people they're sinners. We all, everybody knows there's a sinner. We just need, we need to teach them things to make them feel better about themselves. I don't know. I think when I start feeling too good about myself, I start to forget who God is. We don't like to hear it. We, we want to think that we're all good people. But the reality is, is at the core of who we are as humans, none of us are good. Now, there are people who tell us differently. They tell us that we're good, and then each of us has a little bit of divinity in us, and all we need to do is we need to turn into that, tune into that Christ consciousness is a term that you'll hear. Not a new term. It goes all the way back to the first century and all the Gnostics, but the churches, some churches today are talking about it. Again, that that Christ consciousness is in each of us, and we just need to find that inner divinity But Scripture says, no, there is no good. There's no good in us. They forget about original sin, and they they really, they don't think that there's any need for the atonement of the cross. But the reality is, I think that we need a sense of our sin and the price that was paid for it. Yeah, there is no one that is good, but believe it or not, we are good, but only because of Christ and Him living in us and us surrendering to him day by day, moment by moment. This being aware of our sin is called conviction. Who? Don't want to be convicted of anything. But it's a conviction of sin. And it's just the, 
it is this oppressive spirit that we that we have upon us of uncertainty, this paralyzing guilt that we feel because we realize that we have sinned against a holy God. But the reality is, it's this this wound that we have on our soul is life giving. We, we we can't fear our sin or resent the fact that we are sinners. That's that's not the answer, because if we realize this and we turn to Christ, it brings us life. The reality is that we need this sense of our sin and the price that was paid. Conviction of sin is is, is a way of the Holy Spirit. What he does, he, he confronts us with our sin. He shows us our sin. And it's with a light that we cannot see and the truth that we hate to admit and a guilt we want to ignore. But see, the reality is that conviction of sin is actually a sweetness. Oh, believe me, I hate being convicted of my sin. But within that is a sweetness. The sweetness of God that he he loves me enough to confront me about my sinfulness. People think that, you know, if we love our kids, we'll just let them do whatever they want. No, if you love your kids, you will confront them when they do something wrong. Now, you do it with love and compassion, but you confront them. I I hate to admit it when I'm guilty, but it's sweet. Conviction, being convicted of our sin will, will help us escape from the humdrum of life and to this joy that we find in Christ. You know, people wonder sometimes, well, how can you go through all these troubles and still have a good attitude? It's Jesus. It's not me. If it was up to me, I'd be, I'd be in a ball in the corner weeping because of things that have happened in my life. But because of Christ, I'm able to have joy instead. And what it does is, if we really have, if we're really convicted of our sin, it helps us change from faking our Christianity, which is what a lot of people do. We fake it to an authenticity. But some people think it's destructive. Conviction is destructive. We can't tell people they're sinners. But the truth is that if we do, if we are convicted of our sins, it's life-giving. But we have to allow Jesus Christ to save us. We have to accept that he died for us, the price that was paid. What we need is what we are going to experience in these verses today in Isaiah. The truth about ourselves. So let's go to Isaiah 1, starting with verse 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing through. I'm going to read and then we'll talk about that verse because there's a lot in here that I want to talk about. You know, I'll be honest with you, I was a little leery about preaching from Isaiah. Not because, I just like, well, what am I going to say? This is, this is some deep stuff. And I'm, but I, I think it's been helpful for me to do this. Um, let's begin with verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken... Children I reared, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. I, I believe that 
that when we rebel against God, and as with the Israelites were doing, the, the Judites, this is the this is written to both, but really the Israelites were, were doing, they were they were. God had has a broken heart because of their sin. I think God has a broken heart because of our sin. But us, what we usually try to do with our sin, we try to play it down. You know, we try to de-emphasize it. Yeah, yeah, I, I struggle with that, but you know, it's it's it doesn't have control of me. If somebody says they str- they struggle with something and it doesn't have a control with them, they're lying to themselves. It does have control of you. I can stop it at any time. Then why don't you? And you can't because it has control of you. Our sin does that. We over we under we overemphasize our importance and underemphasize the significance that the sin has in our life. We look at our lives and as, as a passing of, of, of one moment to the next moment. We don't, we don't look at the big picture. We don't look at eternity. We look at now. And I was like, well, I want that now. Live moment to moment to the next. Or we enlarge our importance and the, uh, the importance of the here and now. And believe me, the here and now is important. We have to live in this. But it can't be our all in all. Our vision of our significance is misdirected. We're unaware of the magnitude of what we have done and what we are before God. We trivialize our choices. You know, it's no big deal if I decide to do that. It it really, it, it doesn't hurt anybody, right? We trivialize it, thinking that they don't matter at all in the big scheme of things. I could imagine, I could imagine that Adam and Eve, when they were thinking, well, it's just a fruit. It's good to eat. It looks beautiful. It's, I touched it. It's, I, I'm not dead. I touched it. It really doesn't matter. Until they took the bite, and everything changed. Talk about a small thing mattering a lot. It changed history. But see, that's not how God thinks about us. For Yahweh, the greatest tragedy in the whole universe is when his children rebel against him. Because when they do that, it hinders the, God's blessing. And I think that is what has hindered the blessing, God's blessing of the world today. You know, I, I know there's general grace. I know that God does bless us still. But just think how much more we would be blessed as a nation, as a world, if we had not rebelled against God. The lack of God's blessing on our lives is due to our rebellion against God. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, I want to get blessing, so I'm not going to rebel. No, we, 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 we don't rebel because we love God and we're because of what he has done for us. And the blessing is the result of that. I think the reason repentance is so rare in the world today is because repentance is so rare in the church. Look what God says. Children, I have reared and brought up. I formed you in your mother's womb. He's not just talking about Israel. He raises all of us. God has invested heavily into us. He died for us. And at the same measure that God has done this, we have rebelled against Him. 
and we refuse to repent. We don't feel rebellious, or if we do, it's a very rare instance where we do. In fact, we probably feel that more often we feel as, as people that we're sinned against. We, we, that's why we, we lash out at people, because we feel we've been wronged. The reality is we're the ones doing the wrong. We've offended a holy God. We sometimes feel maybe that God is picking on us. God doesn't pick on us. I mean, we're trying our best. Life is hard. What does God expect from us, right? But see, that attitude in and of itself is rebellion. (laughs) If my kids do something wrong and I catch them in it, and they get angry, that's rebellion. It's more rebellion. Last week in, uh, in Sunday school, we were talking about the different kings. Or no, it was actually in service. We are talking about the different kings. I get them mixed up. Different kings, because we're doing prophets in, the whole, in Sunday school too. But we were talking about the different kings. And, and, and a king goes in and he, has, goes in and he, he, he gets caught doing something he's not supposed to. Does he get angry with himself? No. He gets angry because he was caught. He rebelled and then he rebelled again. Double rebellion. Because see, when we resist God's claim upon us, and we decide that we're comfortable with our mediocrity, we are actually in rebellion against the Father who raised us. And in turn, we live in open defiance to God. I, you know, we all know people who, who are, are struggling in their lives. I don't mean Christians, I mean non-believers. You know they're not a believer. And you look at them and you're like, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. Be careful with that. Because you're also in rebellion when you do that. Remember the, the Pharisee in the temple? Lord, thank you that I'm not like that beggar, that tax collector or whatever he was over here. And he's over there claiming, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Oh, thank God I'm not like him. Yeah, we're all like him. We're all sinners. Oh, I, I think we think that we're good people, which makes us feel better about ourselves. And I, I don't mean to bring you down. I'm not trying to tear you apart. Just because, I mean, this is, these are the things that were going on in Israel at that time. They were having the same thoughts. But we need to be awakened to the truth. And the truth is that God is crying in pain from heaven for the universe to witness the wounds that we cause in his heart. When we rebel against his love for us, when we rebel against him as much as we're blessed by him. Isaiah is going to go on. He's going to give a, good, a great example. I love this example that he gives. He says in verse 3, he says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The ox and the donkey are not exactly the smartest animals in the barnyard. They have their purpose. They know who their owner is. They know who, where, where they sleep. They know who the master's crib is. But they're not at the top of the intelligence ladder in the animal kingdom. And yet, and yet, when God's children rebel against him, they make the donkey 
And they make the donkey and the ox look intelligent. Think about that. When, when we rebel against God, we're making a donkey and an ox look smart. Because he says, they know its owner. They know the master's crib. But Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. We, as children of God, live in open rebellion. And when I say open, I mean that God knows our hearts. It's not like, many, for many of us, we're not out there doing, doing life and doing things that are outright sinful. But I think for a lot of us, and I struggle with this too, a lot of us, it's not out there, the physical things, it's the inner things, the thoughts that we're having. Especially now, recently. Um, And I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better, but, you know, I've never believed that the masks work. I've read all the studies, they don't. CDC has now come out and said, they don't. But that's fine. If someone wants to to put a mask on to feel more comfortable, that's fine. The problem we have is, what is our first thought? Oh, they're just afraid. What are they doing wearing that mask? That's what we think, that's a sin. That is judging someone when we don't know the person. Maybe the person has fear. Maybe the person has lost someone to COVID. And this is how they're adjusting to that loss and that fear. So what we got to do is we got to make sure that we're not just looking at the outside sins that we're doing, but the inside, the heart, the thought, the perceptions we have of people that are not valid until we know the person. When we do those things, we make the donkey and the ox look smart. At least the donkey... And the ox know where they need to go when they need to be fed. They go to their master. But what do we do? We wander from false master to false master. Emptiness, frustration, we're never filled. And then we wonder why God does not seem real to us. We treat him as a problem to work around so that we can get on with the real business of life. Isaiah is telling us that this is, this is stupid. Why do we do this? And in our rebellion, we're breaking God's heart. And in the process of breaking God's heart, we are breaking our own strength. He says in verse 4, he says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. I love, I love that, that vision of being laden with iniquity, that yoke put on our backs, that heavy yoke of iniquity offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. See, we're we're missing the whole point of life because we are so laden with our failures, with our sin. We go from bad to worse. But see, God is not sitting on His throne pointing His finger at us saying, yes, you sinners here and here and here. That's not what he's doing. He's not railing against us. No, the term ah that's used here in this verse, ah, sinful nation. There's a a purpose for that. Word wasn't just put in there just to fill up space. It shows that God is lamenting. 
He's weeping because that's how his people are. He's weeping over the condition of the rebellion of his children. And and the environment that it has placed us in, it breaks his heart to see his people who have been called to greatness wallowing in mediocrity. And I'll be honest with you, you'll hear, you got to be careful because you'll hear some preachers today who will say that same thing and they'll say, yeah, oh yeah, you need, you need to have a vision for your life. You need, the church needs to have a vision. The church needs to do this. You need to, you need to look at yourself and, 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 and be a better person. No, you need to look to Christ. You know what the vision, you know, we don't have vision Sundays here. There's a lot of churches that the first of the year that have vision. We don't have a vision Sunday because you know what our vision is? Our vision and who our vision was given by? It's given by the master. Jesus Christ. He says, all power and authority has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. That is the vision for this church. Love God, love people, make disciples. It doesn't change. Every, that is the vision for every church. That's why I don't consider myself a vision caster, because that, Jesus already did it. That is our vision. What's the vision for my life? What am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be loving God, loving other people, and I'm supposed to be making disciples. It breaks God's heart to see us not living up to the greatness that He has placed on us. What is, how does this how do we how do we get to the spot? What, what brings us into the rebellion? We've turned from God and we have forsaken him. It's not that God has turned his back on us. But we've turned our back on him. If you you watch, there's a a great video called um, American Gospel. There's two of them. And they talk to some people who've gone through reconstruction, which is deconstruction and then reconstructing their, quote, faith. And... um, it's, it's, it used to be called a, a time of crisis of faith. Okay, we, Many of us will go through, most of us will go through it. The question is, who are we getting our answers from? I, I, when I went through mine, I, I turned to the Bible, and I turned to Christ, and I got the answers I needed. But a lot of times, you, you'll find people who go through de- deconstruction and reconstruction, they, they don't turn to Christ, and they turn their back on him. And they say, well, he left me. No, he didn't. You left him. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life I've argued that I've not forsaken God. I mean, I still believe in Him, right? I still pray, I still read my Bible, I still go to church. But see, even that, from God's perspective, we've forsaken Him. Because to forsake Him means that we, <laughs> that we make Him the last resort instead of the first choice. We take what we should focus on in our life, which is Jesus Christ, and we make that the last thing we do. Somebody comes to me and says, oh, Pastor, I'm struggling with this and this. Have you prayed? Well, no, no, I haven't prayed. Why not? Have you asked Jesus to help you through this? I'm not saying he's going to take it away. What I am saying is he's going to walk with you through it. Prayer should be the first thing we do, not the last To despise God is to put other things before him. 
Because he wants to be first. He deserves to be first. And when we don't make him first in our life, we're despising him. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They were doing the same thing. He wanted to be first in their lives, and they made him last. And the condition of our heart estranges us from the God because God's both holy and the holy one. Jonathan Edwards, um, he explains it this way. He says, Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is proportional to his loveliness, honor, and authority. What he's saying is our responsibility to love God is in direct proportion to how much God loves us. He loves us so much that there's nobody who loves us more than God. So we should, and we have an obligation to love, honor, and obey Him. Therefore, sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. Basically, we deserve death. If there is any evil in sin against God, it is the infinite evil. You know, the, the, the normal sins we think about. When I, if I was to say, okay, I'm going to say the word sin, and everybody just shout at me what you think. You know, we're going to think, we're going to hear murder, lying, lusting, adultery, and many more of these outward sins. But those are nothing when we despise and forsake God. When we don't put Him first in our lives, those other sins are nothing compared to that. And the church is not immune from it. Many of the churches today are just going through the motions from doctrinal laws, from collection of biblical facts. They're just looking at the Bible, it's just a bunch of things we need to do. Any, any, there's no childlike wonder, there's no amazement and awe. Those things are completely dead in their lives. The majesty of God, there should be poetry and music in our hearts and in our minds, have become dried up and forgotten. It's like a peach that you leave out on the counter for six months. Moldy, dried up. It's this kind of Christianity that injures us more than we could ever imagine. And it's that, that same kind of, quote, faith, which is not faith at all, that was plaguing the Israelites when Isaiah wrote this. He gives us two pictures to show us how clueless we can be. In verses 5 and 6, he says, why will you be still? Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue? Why are you continuing in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. We are so obsessed with our sin and our rebellion against God that our whole body is covered with bruises. There's not an inch that doesn't have a bruise on it. That's from God's perspective. We are sore, we're bleeding, and yet we're oblivious to it. We have no clue what sin does to us. So what do we do? We keep going back for more punishment. We keep going back to the sin getting more and more bloody. It's like, it's like a boxer who stands in the ring for three rounds, gets pummeled and beaten to death, or to the point of death, unrecognizable. Instead of stopping the fight, what does they do? They go back into the ring and take another beating. 
That's us returning to our sin. Never comprehending why or even imagining that things could be better. I think one of the biggest obstacles we have in our walk in Christ is the fact that we feel healthy. Unfortunately, I think many times as Christians, we compare ourselves to others. And that's what makes us feel better. But we're unaware of the bruises and the wounds. We have such little expectation of how amazing God is that we, we keep forsaking him and despising him, the very one who can bind our wounds and who can heal us. That's why Isaiah is saying, why? Why, why, do you, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep turning from God? Why do you keep going after the Baals? Why? You know God is going to punish you. Why are you continuing to do this? Is, is it your goal to make yourself miserable? These are the things Isaiah is asking. If so, man, you're doing an awesome job of it. Wouldn't it be better if we start to heal instead of continuing to take a beating? And this next image that he's going to give us is of an invaded country that seems oblivious to its own humiliation. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, and your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. You see, Israel, in their rebellion, was desolate. The northern kingdom was going to be completely wiped out. And ultimately, the southern kingdom was going to suffer the same fate. Just not yet. So what Isaiah is trying to do is he's trying to convict them of their sin. Of their oblivious condition that they're in. And we too, at times, suffer when we're in rebellion against God. We're clueless of our condition. But that's not what God wants us to be. If we go to 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now you may think that, well, he's talking to Israel. No, this is Hebrews, written to Hebrew Christians, to Jewish Christians. And you and I, all throughout Scripture, talks about how we have been grafted in as God's chosen people. We are adopted. This is about us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. What Isaiah sees and what many times we see today is we see people who are like a shack in the middle of a picked over field. Invaded by robbers. For us, many times, it's the robbers is Satan himself. He, he's, he comes to destroy. Other times, it's us. It's our own sinful nature that we've allowed to run rampant, allowed to replace God. We desire the things of the heart and of the eyes, and we place them before God. And we're like a shack in the middle of a ravaged field. But that's not who we are to be. We're not to be people who are on the defensive, pitied, exposed, 
cornered and our influence diminished. See, it's not God's will that we're helpless. That's not what he wants. He wants us to be redemptive in this world. In Deuteronomy 26, it says, And the Lord has declared today that you are a people of his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made. And you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations. Our responsibility as believers in Christ is to show the righteousness of Christ to the world. The world is struggling. The world is hurting. The world is dying. The world is lost. And we have the hope. But either we don't share it or our lives don't reflect it. Too many times we have people who are say they're believers in Christ but don't live it. That has to stop. Either that, they've got to be called out. But where to be? This is what we're supposed to be. God's people. Redemptive in the world. It's who the Israelites were to be and it's who we are to be as a church because the church needs a Savior. And it's a miracle, believe me, I truly believe it's a miracle that the church has survived so far. It's not because we're such great people. It's not because we have such great leaders. It's not because we have such great plans and great visions for how we're going to reach the world for Jesus. That's not it at all. The only reason why we're survived is by the grace of God. And the condition that the church is in, no matter what, whether it is successful or not, is, especially the churches that are hurting, it's not because God is weak, it's because we are weak. In verse 9, this is what Isaiah says. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's saying that if God had not left us any, any people to stay here, if God had not completely had, had completely demolished everything, had completely destroyed every person, if God gave us what we deserved, we would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. God is omnipotent. He's the omnipotent, all-powerful Lord of hosts. We survive as a church because God saves sinners. Remember, We're all sinners. We survive as a church because God saves us. He knows what we would become if we were left to ourselves. And in his mercy, he stretches out his hands, and he doesn't want to let us go. This is why we don't explode from the power of evil that is inside each and every one of us. Scripture talks about the fact that that God holds together creation. Our cells stay together because of God. If it wasn't for God, we would our cells would completely separate. We would be gone. Paul in, in the book of Romans, he he kind of uses what Isaiah says here, and this is in Romans 9 29. It says, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would not have been we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
If it was not for God's amazing grace, we too would relive the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That would be our lives. We are what they were, didn't deserve what they got. We are only still here because of the amazing grace of God that saves us from ourselves and from our sins. I love what God says here in Deuteronomy 32. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That is our God. He can wound us and he can heal us. But I believe he would much rather heal us than wound us. We have to come to our senses, repent of our rebellion, and turn to him. See, that, that is what, I think that's why we have the book of Isaiah. What you're going to find, and you find in many of the writings of the prophets, there is a call against sin that's being committed. And there is a, there's a statement that you're going to be punished. But there's always hope. I will call you back. Always, I will call you back. It's that hope that we have. And that hope is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, the good news for us is that Jesus, too, was wounded. We'll see when we get to Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It is because of the wounds of Jesus Christ that we are healed. We no longer are bruised head to toe when we turn to Christ and we trust him. Yeah, are we still going to once in a while slip and we're going to do something that's sinful and we're going to get another sore? Yes, but we can always go back to Christ, repent, and he will heal us. We're in his hands. Nothing can take us out of his hands. Isaiah is convicting Judah of their sins, just like we need to be convicted of our sins. But the danger is that we can be convicted of a million sins and we can never experience the healing that God brings. Because the only conviction of sin that heals us is when we see how we have despised and how we have forsaken the very one who died to save us. Those are, that's the only conviction that brings us to salvation and brings us to repentance. Remember, it says, it's your kindness, Lord, that, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is this nice, smiley man upstairs who, oh, just come to me, I don't care what you've done. No, his kindness is that he sent his son to die in our place. That's the kindness and only a heart fully committed to the Lord will secure for us what really matters in life. Because the godliness, godliness is always, always revealed in our behavior. But not in some external religion. So what is your conscience telling you? See, if we trust God enough to repent and admit our rebellion and open up to his grace... He's going to start healing us even more than we could ever imagine. 
book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1. This is what it says. I want to end with this. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.